I always had this dream of breaking the three F's of endurance, a world's first, a world's furthest, and a world's fastest. Uh, I got the world's first when I swam the length of Britain. I got the world's furthest when I did the, the longest triathlon. Um, but the world's fastest, that's the one that was just kept eluding me, you know. Episode 36, and the watchword is ultra-endurance. Sean Conway changed tack from having a normal job to breaking endurance world records and writing books for a living. And in this episode, he tells us how he did it. When he was young, Sean had an ambition to travel the world working as a photographer, and he didn't quite achieve his aim. After after 10 years and reaching the age of 30, he was working in the UK and specialising in school portraits. Whilst professionally he was doing well, there was something missing. And so Sean made the, the biggest of career changes. Whilst trying to work out how to fund a life of travel, he decided he needed to break world records in order to get sponsored. And this is how he would make his new living. He swam the length of Britain and was the first person to do so. The world's furthest was the longest triathlon ever completed. And then the world's fastest was cycling across Europe from the most westerly mainland point in Portugal to the most easterly point in Russia. You can keep up with Sean on Instagram at Sean Conway Adventure or via his website, seanconway.com. I'm Mark Thompson. This is the Watchword Podcast, and this week's watchword is ultra endurance. A good place to start would be to to summarise the the trips that you've been on. I mean, I know there's been quite a few, but I mean, just just for, just for context, <laughs> ah, summarise the trips well. So it all starts in 2012. Uh, well, actually, no, it started. 2008 really when I decided to cycle Land's End to John O'Groats. Mm. Um, 2012 I uh, well actually it's very importantly 2009 I did the Gloucestershire cheese rolling which is very very important probably the hardest thing I've ever done um, and then 2012 I cycled around the world 2013 I was the first person to swim the length of Britain 2015 I ran the length of Britain and in doing so I swum cycled and run the length of Britain um, in sort of, sort of sort of a triathlon I guess um, and 2016 I think yeah I did the world's longest triathlon so that was 4,000 miles um, and then 2018 I got the world record for cycling across Europe um, those are the big ones. Those are the big ones. Uh, I've done tons of little ones like kayaking the Thames, um, walking to London from Cheltenham for cheaper than the train, um, cycling to the Alps for cheaper than the flight, which was actually very, very easy because uh, the flight was about £200. So actually we had a lot of spending money on that one. Um, and yeah, various other little things. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's it in a nutshell. They're incredible trips, obviously, and the the what's interesting is now, obviously, you've you, you know you've you've settled down, you're married, and you've you've got a, a child now, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monty's seven, seven, uh, sixteen months now. Well, um, congratulations! It's great. I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> but if we if we go back to the be- the beginning, um, in terms of the the adventures and the drive to do it, like where. Where do you think it, it started? Uh, well, I know exactly where it started. It, um, 
I used to be a photographer and, oh, I mean, I loved photography. You literally, you couldn't pull me away from thinking everything I looked at could be a potential photograph. You know, I lived and breathed and dreamt photography. I would spend hours in the dark room back in the day with before digital cameras and, oh, it was just in my soul. And I just, to this day, I, it, it's been hard to replicate that excitement I used to have when I would go and take a photo on slide film, get it developed. And, you know, by the time you develop the slide film and, you know, you're in the dark room, that's probably a day or two later before you really see you, the photo you took. And as it emerges through the water or through the chemicals, it's just like, whoa, I've taken an amazing picture. Um, so I, I just, photography was my life, you know, my absolute life. And I always dreamt that the camera and photography was going to, be my passport to traveling the world. You know, I just, I truly believed. I mean, this is how I was a teenager. I believed by the time I'm 30, I am going to be this amazing travel photographer. You know, I had posters of all these amazing wildlife photographs um, all over my bedroom as a kid. I mean, I even went to the trouble of laminating them. You know, <laughs> it's like, this is serious business, you know carefully sculpting out pages from magazines and laminating them and putting them on my bedroom wall. And, and um, yeah, that was, that was the dream, you know, the dream to sort of go off and live this daring and unusual um, and interesting life as a, as a sort of travel photographer. Um, unfortunately, and I, I just kind of lost my vision, which is quite easy to do really in your early twenties when, you do have this huge weight of, of, of trying to survive on this planet. And in order to survive, you need to provide yourself with shelter, food and water. And, and often, you know, the only way to do that was to do f photography jobs that I didn't particularly enjoy. Um, and I soon discovered this sort of, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a secret because other companies did it, but this, the, the market of photography where it was literally just taking like candy from babies <laughs> was uh, the school portrait photography market. Mm. You know, so back in the early 2000s, this was pre-smartphones, pre of course, pre-sort of digital cameras being mainstream. So if a family wanted a nice photo of their child, they had to go to a studio really or have to be pretty good with a, a camera themselves. So we just sort of set up the school portrait business where we basically created studio quality photography for parents to buy that we would do at schools. And this was, so this was for youngsters. So once, once they sort of got older than six years old, that wasn't really our market because then they just got quite formal. I mean, everyone remembers photo day. Remember, it was sort of sitting in front of the mottled background and, <laughs> you know, you're all queuing up outside, you know. Um, whereas we would do, we would do the toddlers and the babies because we felt that that was sort of more creative, which would allowed us to actually have quite, quite a lot of fun with it. To be honest, we got the kids jumping around and playing with toys. And it actually was really, you know, looking back now, we were really quite far ahead of our time. You know, it was 2005, 2004, 2005, we were already doing 
completely secure online ordering and online viewing systems where parents could just got their, their unique code and they logged in and they could buy a CD, you know, like we'll, you could download your pictures onto a CD-ROM. <laughs> you know, we were, you know, that bit of it was exciting. I have to be honest, like that creating something new, being a bit different, you know, pushing yourself. And, but then, you know, after about a year of that, we'd pretty much nailed the system. And then after that, it just became a numbers game to us. You know, I knew that each kid was worth X amount of money to me. If I photographed more kids, I would earn more money. And, and it was simple as that. And my whole existence as a photographer boiled down to, you know, how many pounds per child um, and how many kids could we photograph in a year. And uh, it turns out we could photograph about 10,000. Um, and, and we did that. So we had a, we're based in North London, but we had offices in um, Birmingham. Well, I say offices. We would we would photograph schools in Birmingham, London, and we were also based in the Channel Islands, where my business partner James Carnegie, where he was from. So yeah, I mean, business was good, and um, and the money was good for a you know twenty two year old going into a nursery of a hundred kids and probably walking away with about two grand after you know once you sold all the pictures that was crazy money mm. you know <laughs> back in 2005 i mean that's crazy money now mm. um and you can imagine how hard it was to say yes to a a travel magazine who wanted to send you somewhere interesting but only kind of pay for your flight and accommodation you know when you, you look at that versus going and photographing you know a week's worth of nurseries um yeah i mean it, it, it was difficult to sort of balance up the kind of the passion versus like just living and, and being, you know, trying to buy food and pay rent and that sort of thing, because it, you, you get into a vicious cycle, you know, you, you start earning more money. Uh, and in my case, all that really allowed me was to kind of buy more expensive versions of the things I had already. Yeah. So, you know, all of a sudden I'd go out to a slightly better restaurant and then buy slightly more expensive beer, in the, <laughs> you know, in the pubs. Uh, you know, all of a sudden I was like, ooh, craft ale, five pound a pint, no worries. <laughs> you know, I'm not living on Foster's anymore. <laughs> you know, and, um, and, and that's what I did. So you kind of, you'd get into this vicious sort of spiral where if you're not ahead of the game, all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at the jobs you're going to do in six months time. Cause you know, you book in these nurseries six months ahead and you've, you've almost in your head, you've got the money in the back. So then you go and you buy a slightly, you know, fancier car and then you get a slightly, you know, better TV for your house, even though you, I mean, you have the money, but you don't really have the money cause it's not come in yet properly. So then you almost have to go and do more. You live in this perpetual sort of on the back foot really. Um, and, and for no other reason than I just, I just made silly mistakes. Like I just, you know, I was stupid with it. I was, I just thought, well, if I actually earned more money and I really truly believed it, I thought if I earned more money, I would, it would allow me the time to do some more creative photography. Yeah. Uh, but in, in practice, 
you know, the more money you earn, the, you know, no one gives money away for nothing. It comes with more stress, usually, you know, for the most part. Mm. Um, and, and that's what that happened. All of a sudden, you know, I, I actually, we got so busy, I just, I didn't even have time to, to, do, to do any of the photography uh, anymore. And I literally just became a, an order, orders processor. So every morning I'd come in and there'd be X amount of orders in the system and I'd have to process them, um, not completely manually one by one, but you've got to sort of check them and make sure everything's going through right to the printers and, you know, and that and getting contact sheets out to the nurseries and, you know, administration and, and dealing with complaints, you know, it's, you know, the Royal Mail, as amazing as they are, you know, something's going to get bent every now and then. Um, a corner of a photograph is going to get crumpled. You know, the colour in the print might be slightly off, you know. Um, that was quite funny, actually. That, that was, uh, this happened so many times. We actually had a joke for it in the office when um, pe parents used to often complain. They, they said, oh, we've just received our photograph. And um, unfortunately, you, you've made our kid look ginger. <laughs> if anyone listening to this doesn't know what I look like, uh, I am all the ginger. <laughs> I am all of it. So we used to have a right old chuckle. I felt like sending them a picture of me saying, be careful you say that too. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so eventually I turned 30, you know, having this pretty successful um, nursery photography business, looking to expand into different parts of the UK, um, you know, working on, and, and, you know, we were working on some fun stuff. We, we sort of, we're thinking of some sort of grassroots photography program for underprivileged um, people and kids to get into the photography game by training them up and that sort of thing. And, you know, it was all, it was all going to, it was, you know, kind of some of it was exciting, but the problem is the core of it was we were glorified passport photographers, you know? Um, and, you know, it, that was it. Just white background, come in, jump around, do a few things, snap, 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 next. And that didn't really kind of scratch that that itch I had as a as a as a sort of ambitious teenager to 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 travel the world and lead a, a sort of a, a unique and interesting life um and that's when I sort of packed it all in so I I sold my share in the company so I, I owned 50 percent James Carnegie owned the other 50 I sold my shares to him for one pound and walked away. I was just like, I, I couldn't do it. It all happened quite quickly. I, I just, I, I sort of, I, I turned 30 and I think that was probably the, the realization that, oh wow, I am now 30 and I'm not in the jungles of Peru or the Atacama desert. Um, and yeah, from there to sort of packing it all in was oh, a couple of months really. Um, and then, you know, what do you do? I've, I have no A-levels. I didn't go to university. Photography was a hobby that I got good at, you know, from when I was 12 years old is when I started it. So I, I really knew nothing else. Um, so I thought, well, let me, let me go traveling. Like I really want to go traveling, but I didn't have any money because I had all these, you know, this expensive car and this nice flat and this telly and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I kind of was just trying to think outside the box and I thought, how can I get someone else to pay for me to go traveling? That was as simple as it was. How do I get someone else to pay for me to go traveling? Mm. And I thought, well, I could, 
go and approach magazines uh, and see if they wanted to send me abroad. Um, and I thought, well, actually, that's not going to work because one part of the sale with my company was uh, all the equipment um, went to James. I, I didn't keep any of the kit um, because he still needed it to operate. Uh, and two, I had no sort of portfolio of travel photography, absolutely none. So, I mean, why is a magazine going to send me to go and do some cool stuff abroad? Because the, the idea was for me to go abroad. I wanted to go and travel, you know. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, but more importantly, I just, I didn't want to. I just, the idea of picking up a camera for, for work, for, you know, for a job in inverted commas was just, I burnt that bridge and, you know, I just didn't want to do it. So I had, I sort of sat down, I thought, when were you last the most happy? And it turns out that the time I was the most happy was the time I was the most miserable, which was <laughs> when I cycled Land's End to John O'Groats in April of 2008. And it was freezing. It snowed on me in April. It was hail. All the campsites were empty because no one was out camping yet. Um, I was alone pretty much for a whole month. I took a month off to do it. Um, I had a heavy bike, you know, it just, looking back now, it's like, how did you do that? You know, I had no training. I, I could barely cycle 50 miles a day. Like I really, that was my limit pretty much. Um, so I was super unfit, heavy bike, but I just, that sense of achievement and that sort of way of life, the sort of life on the road, um, and the fact I was using my my, my physical body um, was something something new, you know. And I thought, well, let me see if I could do another cycle because you know, cycling is is without a doubt the most efficient way of travelling. You know, you can travel vast distances on very little money um, if you're sort of looking at distance per cost if you know what I mean yeah um and and anyone can do it pretty much you know or you know any anyone who, who, who can get on a bike and balance can do it so that's kind of when I thought of trying to break some sort of cycling record because if I did that if, I, if there was a record angle maybe I would get sponsorship um and that was kind of the thinking, you know, that was the thinking behind my first big thing, the, the round the world cycle back in 2012. Um, and, and that kind of set me off on this, this sort of path I'm on now. But, but you know, to answer your question, like what drives me? What's that thing that kind of gets me out of bed? And it, it, for me, it's just that, that I know how easily you can fall in to you know a path that has a destination that you're not really into but the path kind of looks the same as as the path you should have taken so you don't jump ship um but it's only when you can kind of see the destination at the end you realize oh my goodness i'm so far down the wrong path um and you have to backtrack you know so uh you know i i, I know how not to live life and for me i just now want to live a, a sort of a, an un, unusual and interesting life. I think that's what drives me now, just to fill, fill my old age home stories with, uh, with some, you know, jeopardy and, 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 and that sort of thing. And, and that kind of makes life exciting for me.
Well, you're, you're certainly doing that. There's no, there's no doubt about it. But I guess you're, before you made that decision, um, it, you had sort of around about 10 years, it's, it sounds like, in the, in the sort of professional world. And, and you mentioned yeah. you did the, the Land's End to John O'Groat cycle in 2008. Did you, yeah. uh, so, uh, so obviously you're into, you're into moving to cycling to, you know, to running, etc. How did you sort of scratch that itch just in and around the job and keep things ticking over um, in terms of in terms of your desire to to cycle? Because it's such a drastic change. Yeah. So when I cycled Lands into John O'Groats in 2008, that was very much the sort of the peak of my sort of school photography life really career as it were you know that's 2008 we were super busy we were just expanding I think we had just started up in, in, the, in the Midlands um, in Birmingham um, and looking back now I think from then is when it, it started to go downhill for me when things just it, it wasn't that exciting mm. so I wanted to go on holiday um, and I you know, my family's, on my mum's side is English, on my dad's side is Irish. Um, so my grand was born in London, my granddad was born in Lincolnshire, um, but I was born in Zimbabwe. Um, so I'd never really explored Britain that much. So when I cycled it in 2008, for me, that was just my holiday, really. I took a month off just to explore Britain because, you know, there's, there's so many amazing places I saw in magazines, especially back then, you know, this is pre-Instagram and stuff, pre-smartphones, yeah. um, like the Lake District, I had no clue, the Highlands in Scotland and, you know, uh, Dartmoor and, you know, all these amazing places I'd only ever seen in magazines. So I wanted to explore that. So that was just, a, you know, I saved up. The whole thing only, I think, cost me a thousand pounds back then. Um, and that's including buying the bike. I bought the bike for 350 pounds on eBay. Um, and then... I spent another 750 over the 25 days um, going up and down. And that's including the train there and the train back. Although the train back back then was so cheap, 2008. So from Inverness to London, 32 quid. <laughs> it's like 200 pounds an hour. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was very much just um, it, it, you know, a holiday in work. And then after that, I, actually, I remember this very well. I remember getting home on my bike called Valerie. And I remember sort of taking all the panniers off and, you know, she was covered in mud and dust. And I remember going out with the, the, uh, the hose pipe and washing her down and going, wow, that was the best month of my life. This is going to be the start of a, a new chapter. I'm going to be a changed person from now on. I'm going to cycle everywhere and I'm going to move on to better things. I put the bike in the shed and didn't look at it again for another two years. <laughs> Wow. genuinely like that was it so you know i just got caught caught up back in in the sort of the, you know i hate to say rat race because i think there are people who are really in the rat race where who have mortgages and 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 responsibilities you know i, I had none of that but i still was in a some sort of race but i didn't know really who i was up against um you know, a, a race to somewhere where I didn't really know what the point of it was. You know, it's like I'd started this race thinking I knew what, where the end was and what the goalpost was and what sort of 
you know time you want to do the race in but all of a sudden you, you get halfway and you're like really is that maybe i could do it quicker maybe i should do it quicker you know and, and you just push that benchmark up and then just just kind of getting too much so so when i quit in in 2011 when i was 30 uh that was for me you know that was my earning potential you know uh you know under employment or in photography was was zero so all of a sudden i was now I had no prospects of earning any money which is why i had this urgency to try and break a world record and get sponsorship you know that was that was it really i had to i had to do that and then once i got sponsored for the first thing that round the world cycle you know i then thought well actually i didn't think that in hindsight, I've looked back and gone, oh, well, I, you know, I've, I've seen that that was something that I could do and, and repeat that sort of process. But actually, after the round world cycle, I was fully um, went back into the world of trying to, to get a job. You know, I moved back into my uh, little one bedroom flat with my mother in Cheltenham. Um, I was on job seekers allowance. I was trying for tons of jobs, you know. You know, at all the bike shops around me, I was trying to get mechanic jobs and trying to do courses. I was trying to get jobs with um, sustainable transport companies like Sustrans, trying to, you know, get their, they had a bike kit officer job back then. I was applying for every single one of those countrywide. You know, I was in Cheltenham, but I, I thought, well, actually, I can live anywhere. So I was trying, looking for, for that job. And, you know, I spent whew, six months and didn't even get one interview. I didn't actually, I didn't even get an email to say, um, thank you for your application, but on this, on this point, we've gone with someone else. Um, but you know, I don't blame them. You know, I was 30, by then I was 31 years old. Uh, I had no A-levels. I didn't go to university. I, and I was a school portrait photographer for 10 years you know, <laughs> what could I bring to the table um, for any other company, really? Um, so after that, I sort of then went, well, you know, my mother's doing her head in with me living on the sofa. Like, she wants me out. <laughs> I, I want out. I'm 31 living with my mom on the sofa. Um, let me, maybe if I try and break another world record, that's the kind of, you know, maybe I'll get sponsorship and at least that'll give me something to do for six months and I'll be able to afford to buy food and that sort of thing. Um, and then that sort of led me on to sort of thinking of another thing. And that's when I thought of swimming the length of Britain. Um, and, and yeah, we just went off and, and did that one. It's, it's great to, it's great to hear this story. I mean, it's so, it's such a huge transition and such a sort of exciting journey and uh, like we talked about before we started recording the the podcast the aim the aim of this podcast um and the, the reason that we're doing it is to try and create a a library of interesting stories where people have made big decisions in their life and changed tack um with a view to finding what what it is that they want to do perhaps yeah uh, and your your story is a, a really sort of almost perfect example of that um so it's, it's, it's awesome to hear about the build-up. And I guess if we look, that, that was some time ago now, that was kind of, you know, 2012, 2013. Yeah. And the, the, one, the one trip that I'm sort of most familiar with at, at the moment is, I, I think, your most recent one in terms of cycling across Europe. 
Yeah. So I guess if we if that was the start point where you were struggling, you struggled to do 50 miles a day to get from Land's End to uh, John O'Groats. And then we contrast that with your most recent trip across Europe. Let, it, let's just sort of, if you talk through the, the numbers involved in that, in that cycling trip. Yeah. So the, I, I always had this dream of breaking the three F's of endurance, a world's first, a world's furthest and a world's fastest. Uh, I got the world's first when I swam the length of Britain. I got the world's furthest when I did the, the longest triathlon. Um, but the world's fastest, that's the one that was just kept eluding me. You know, I tried loads of things. Um, the round the world didn't go to plan. I got run over in America. Um, I tried route 66, uh, bike race to try and get the route 66 cycling record, uh, got injured. I tried Europe. Uh, in 2017 the Europe record which is from the edge of Portugal to the Ural Mountains in Russia so Russia is half Europe and half Asia so where it becomes Asia that's where the end is um, and it's, it's far it's 4,000 miles the Europe ride um, and yeah it's as a self-supported ride with those conditions it really is pushing the limits of your daily mileage you know so I was doing uh, about 170 miles a day, you know, a good day, 200 miles, a bad day, 150 miles. Um, and, you know, that's fully self-supported. So I've got panniers, I've got a sleeping bag, a bivy, carrying my own food, water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and that was, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was really tough, you know, because cycling 170 miles a day isn't, actually that hard if you if you do the maths you know if you're having six hours sleep you got 18 hours you know as long as you're doing you know 10 miles an hour on the bike maybe you know 11 12 miles an hour on the bike you'll have a, an hour break in the middle somewhere you know so if you look at the maths that's not particularly hard but actually when you've when you've got bumpy roads where you you know that you, your pace is slow because the tarmac's in poor condition you've got headwinds you can't find food you know when you're doing that sort of mileage you're cycling either quite early in the morning or late at night when often things are closed so you can't get food and water all those sort of things add add you know a hell of a lot of effort to it so it's 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 a lot kind of more complicated than just throwing a number out there because if you're fully supported on it there's no reason to do less than 200 miles a day on a fully supported bike ride mm. you know really if you look the guys who do ram race across America, you know, they're pushing 350, 400 miles a day. It's phenomenal. Mm. You know, so that's when you're fully supported. That's, those are, those are numbers. You know? <laughs> those are, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I really, you just don't sleep, you know, I, I'm quite good at not sleeping now, but um, you really, I don't know, you know, I, to do that sort of mileage on, on public roads, kind of there comes a point where you just gotta say is this worth it you know yeah also uh, i guess the the roads in america are quite uh, uh quite straight as well and quite featureless whereas you were kind of twisting and turning your way across um yeah but i think yeah i guess having looked having seen that program the uh, definitely not under the illusion that it was easy i mean you, you mentioned that you had some kit but it was incredibly lightweight the kit that you had you, you you had minimal shelter you were kind of just sleeping by the side of the road uh wherever yeah. you, wherever you could um stop it was 
it looked pretty, you know, it's, it's brutal really. Cause you're, you were trying to minimize weight on the bike, I guess. So you've got, you have got the absolute bare minimum. Yeah. You, you're trying to steal minutes, like genuinely you're trying to steal minutes because these sort of records over a 4,000 mile ride, um, I broke the record by about 20 minutes a day. Now, 20 minutes a day is potentially traffic lights. So when you do 200 miles across an urbanish area like Germany, for example, um, you'll easily stop at traffic lights for 20 minutes a day. Easily, you know. Um, so you are genuinely just trying to steal minutes. So you, and you work backwards. You go, well, if I cut my toothbrush in half, that genuinely is not going to actually save me any time at all. However, in my mind, I know I am 10 grams lighter and the positive energy you get from being in a better mood mm. will make me quicker, 100%. Mm. You know? So it's little things like that. So you know, I'm, I'm trying to go as lightweight as possible. I'm sleeping as close to the road as possible because you know, there's no point in going 100 meters down a side track to get away from the road because that's a minute or two, you know, and all these minutes, you just, you're really hungry for them. So I would set my alarm clock in the morning um, at 3.58. I have this weird thing where I can't set my alarm on the hour or any five minute intervals thereafter. Yeah, I'm I'm the same. (laughs) I do the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. And also because it had a three in the front of it, I found it, I thought that was really early. Yeah. Um, So... (laughs) 3.58 3.58 and I sort of gave myself 14 minutes to be on the bike. So this is from, as the alarm went off, I would always position the, the, um, the valve of my inflatable um, mattress by my right-hand shoulder. So alarm would go off. I would undo the valve straight away while I was lying on the mattress because then my body weight would sort of let the mattress go down. I would then sort of sit up, um, get out the sleeping bag. I'm still in my kit. I always slept in my cycling kit um, because if it was a little bit wet, it would dry itself out by the morning. Um, You know, get up while I'm sitting on it, roll my sleeping bag up into its thing. By this time, all the the air's blown out the camping mat. Um, Roll that up, put that away, get up, put my shoes on, you know, get back onto the road. And, and yeah, it's quite easy actually to get, you know, get on the bike pretty quickly. Um, oh, I usually have some water. I usually finish whatever's in my water bottle um, just to get a bit, bit hydrated and, and then, and then push on. So yeah, you really are trying to just steal every sort of minute you can because it, it all adds up, you know, these, the different trips that you've been on all share, a couple of similarities, I guess, or one in particular, which is, which is clearly it's, it's a feat of endurance. It takes a long time. You're, you're on your own almost throughout the whole, the whole thing. What's the, what's the sort of emotional journey like throughout an event like the the Europe cycling trip? So you, you get better at it. In the early days, I was very overwhelmed, especially cycling around the world. You know, there was times where I was in the middle of the Atacama Desert and, you know, I, I just, I, I couldn't hack the enormity of what I was doing. 
and I just got quite emotional and I forgot to drink, I forgot to eat, I got dehydrated because it was all just kind of too much. Um, but since then, you know, I've learned, I've learned to sort of be more focused actually. And I'm now, <laughs> well, I actually have two very sort of different personalities really. Um, I'm, a, I'm a monkey terrier in life and I'm a monkey when I'm a monkey and I enjoy being a monkey. But if I'm a monkey too long, I get distracted and I get frustrated because I don't have focus. So every now and then I need to be in terrier mode. And then when I'm in the terrier mode, I am in, I'm like, that's it. Blinkers on, trying to get to the finish line. I don't really care. You know, everyone's like, oh, it's all about the journey. You know, I'm like, sod that. <laughs> it's, I'm like destination only. Like, I don't care what's going on around me. I just want to win, right? You know, no, no one asks you say, bot when he's running the 100 meters. Like, oh, so what did you enjoy about your run you know what was the scenery like he's like are you joking <laughs> and i'm kind of the same except mine's four thousand miles long um but I, but genuinely i mean i i can hardly remember anything of the journey the the only reason i remember it is i take quite detailed voice notes and then when i listen to them back it kind of jogs my memory and that's how i'm able to write the book uh, about it um, but for me, it's just, you know, terrier mode, terrier mode. But you, I can't be terrier all the time because I just burn out because I'm just, you know, redlining it the whole time, right? So, um, so on the Europe record, you know, when I'm in terrier mode, I'm very much, right, I, I call them the five pistons of endurance. I'm like food, water, sleep, muscle management, motivation. If I'm going to do any, any mileage, any decent mileage, you know, rec world record pace mileage, I need to have all five of those firing on all cylinders. Now, in 25 days to cycle across Europe, I probably had three days when all five were firing hmm. um, because inevitably you've slept too little or you've slept too long, which makes, means you're behind schedule or your muscles are sore because maybe you pushed it a little bit too hard on the hills the day before or you've not had enough salt, or you've not had enough water, you've not had enough good food, you know, fresh food, because you're living out of supermarkets, uh, service stations even, mm. um, you know, packets of crisps and milkshakes. And, you know, so it's, it's very hard to get all, all five of those firing. Um, but that's what I focus on, I'm sort of micromanaging every single sort of hour, you know, drinking, salt, food, navigation, where's the wind coming? Can I change my route to benefit the wind a little bit? benefit from the wind a little bit but then you know if you do that all day by the end of it you're just so exhausted so every now and then you know mon monkey mode comes in um and that's when i have fun with it that's when i you know found a dog skull in spain called it pedro tied it to the front of my bike and cycled it across the whole of europe with mm. it um and and that for me is important to sort of kind of realize that i'm doing this because a I, i'm good at it and it's, it's, it's very rewarding finding something you're good at and, and that you kind of enjoy. I mean, I, I, I don't, not for one second will I say that I enjoyed the cycle across Europe. Uh, there were moments of enjoyment, of course, you know, some of the sunrises were beautiful. Some of the landscape was great. Um, you know, a couple of people I met in the service stations made me laugh. Um, but for the most part, it's pretty miserable, right? But the enjoyment comes afterwards. Mm. So, you know, it, it's, it's great. So that's kind of 
what kind of keeps me going on uh, on these sort of long things, having that mixture of the terrier and the monkey and hoping that one doesn't kind of burn out the other, you know? Yeah, and it sounds like, like quite a structured approach as well. So you're just managing yourself, managing your self physically and then and then mentally and having that structure throughout the day kind of um yeah yeah you have to otherwise you just won't break the record you just Mm. won't break it and you have to really be quite on it you know if there's one day where i get dehydrated and i lose 30 miles you know it's going to take me three or four days to make that mileage back you know Mm -hmm because practically 30 miles is three hours, really. Um, Once you've included, you know, messing around with trying to, you know, set up camp and looking for a camp spot and stopping for food and water, most of the part, because also you've got to, the the mileage at the end of your day, which for me was sort of around 10, 11 at at night, you know, that's always the slow mileage as well, because you're tired. So if you're dropping three hours on one day, You've got to remember, I only broke the record by 20 minutes a day. Yeah. You know, you've, you've lost potentially 10 days, more 12 days worth of, of progress in one day. Yeah. And that can be as simple as just having one liter of water too little. Yeah. Um, so you really, you've got, to, you've got to be on it. And actually, I quite enjoy it. I quite enjoy that constant sort of, working things out kind of gives me something to focus on while I'm cycling along when I'm not talking to a dead dog on the front of my handlebars, you know? <laughs> so one of my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the, uh, of that trip, or certainly one of the most memorable was when the, the system, <laughs> the system didn't quite go according to plan and you, you ended up trying to, well, you did defrost a frozen pizza <laughs> by leaving it by leaving it in the sun, and you yeah, so that you you just needed to get you needed calories, and it was the, your calorie consumption obviously is pretty extraordinary as as you'd expect. But and then when, but when you when you watch it in terms of the way that you go about it, it's um yeah. It's, I mean, I've eaten some interesting things in the time, but um, you. You know, I'm, I'm just on a time schedule, you know, I'm trying to, again, limit my stops to sort of up 14 minutes, you know, anything under 15 minutes, it's sort of stop, run in, buy some water, um, buy something to eat and, and get out of there. And you've got to kind of get the most calories per volume. Yeah. Um, Cause you want to fill your stomach with good stuff, but also within the nutritional pie, you've got energy, energy recovery and health. You know, you need to have a bit of the health pie as well because your body needs fresh fruit and vegetables and antioxidants and all these things to perform better. But it's quite easy to run in and just buy, you know, junk food because it's got loads of fat and sugar in it. Um, so, yeah. But then, you know, what choice do I have? I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> in the middle of Spain not going along the a road next to the motorway and all I've got services. So you're just running in and, you know, services, actually, you know what, it made me realize how amazing services in the UK are because at least you kind of get sandwiches in the UK with some fresh veg in. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of Europe, except Germany, Germany felt the closest to the UK in, 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 in the terms of service stations. But a lot of it is literally you pay for your fuel and then there's some um, crisps 
and some donuts maybe and some frozen food and 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 fizzy drinks really <laughs> so i'm just surviving on you know trying to get crisps in me and to get my salt levels up and that sort of thing but yeah this time the only thing i could find that was remotely calorific was frozen pizza in the pizza in the pizza aisle so i bought some of that uh bought some water sat and tried to defrost the pizza which is quite easy it was 40 degrees in spain nearly i think <laughs> so actually it defrosted quite quickly but what it didn't do is cook the dough uh so it may have not been frozen but it was still uncooked it was pretty, <laughs> dis- pretty disgusting <laughs> did you did you get did you get it down though did you finish it um i, I think i had half of it yeah. I, I think by the end I, I was sort of weighing up the options of, you know, I was trying to work hard in my head. Is, is uncooked dough actually any good for me? So, you know, so I could have had, it was 2,000 calories, that pizza. You know, sh- should I have all 2,000 calories now of this, which I, you know, non-ideal meal? Or do I maybe have 1,000 calories of this and then hope that in a couple of hours' time I'll find something else that's better? And actually, I did on that occasion. I was quite lucky. I managed to find a, um, a service station which had um, sort of microwave meals. So you could go, not ready meals, basically, but there was a, a pasta one. I thought, well, that is possibly better um, than, than from an energy point of view. Um, and I, th- I had a banana as well. I think I can't remember now. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, my, the, the, the worst thing I've eaten is dog food, actually. That was the, the thing I ate once because I, I, needed, I needed protein. I sort of need 100, 100, 130 grams of protein a day. Um, and I just, for the life of me, went into the service, the sort of co-op thing, and there was nothing. <laughs> the only thing I could find that had tons of protein, it was sort of those that looked like biltong jerky style you know, beef um, uh, yeah. dog food <laughs> so that was pretty disgusting that at was least, pretty disgusting yeah but at least you weren't spooning out of the out of the can you <laughs> you um you so you made a couple of um comments that obviously a little insight into the amount of planning that you do in terms of your knowledge around you know the the, the five areas that you need to manage and uh, say the amount of protein you need to consume for example do you do you work with with nutritionists and, and a, a team to sort of enable the planning of this? Cause there's, there's like, it seems like there's this, a balance between, between it being a, a, a mental endeavor, which it, by the sounds of it, it's, it's largely mental, but then supported by the physical aspect so that your body doesn't fail. So how, yeah. how, how do you, do you have nutritionists that you work with and, and then do you try and build that, build that into your plan? Um, no, I, I don't have a team as it were. Uh, I've met people along the way. I, I used a guy called Steve Mellor, um, who used to lecture at Loughborough University. So he was, he was pretty good. Uh, so back in 2011, when I was training for cycling around the world, he gave me a lot of advice and, and that was really useful um, back then. Um, and, but since then, it's, for me, it's, it's kind of been trial and error. So I don't, I don't have a team of anyone really. Um, well, no one at all, you know, every now and then I might, you know, message Steve and go, ah, oh, mate, you know, I've got this knee thing, you know, what could that be? And he'd be like, oh, it might be your abductors or your hip flexors or, you know, a tight glute and get a tennis ball in there. And, you know, he, he'll help me out for little things like that. But I, I don't, I, 
I don't have a plan from anyone. I don't have a training plan. I don't even write myself a training plan. Um, I very much kind of work on perception, perception of effort and how I feel. And I kind of know what I need to do. And I've got a lot of training here, you know, for my Europe ride, uh, I averaged. So my average was 170 miles a day. Um, the longest ride I did in training was 130, I think. That was my longest ride. I probably only did five rides that were longer than 100 miles um, in my training for Cycling Cross Europe. Um, because, you know, as you say, a lot of it's mental. You know, a lot of it's strategy. A lot of it's spending less time on the bike. Um, it's not all about being macho and and muscular and pushing big power which is why now loads of female ultra cyclists are winning races it's amazing and i love it you know sarah hammond she's won race to the rock three years in a row beating everyone uh, Lael wilcox in america she won the trans am the trans am self-supported bike race across america in 2000 and i want to say 16 17 but, you know, um, Juliana Bering, she, you know, she often podiums or, or wins these, these uh, ultra races as well. So, you know, you can you know, get by without having this crazy high power output, you know. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it's great, you know, because there's a lot more to ultra cycling than just your physical ability. You know, there's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of just, you know body maintenance that you've got to look after and things like that, which allow you to do more mileage, you know, for example, you know, if you, if your saddle's at the wrong position or you've, you've got a, a bad habit where you sort of, you uh, push down on your pedals too much, um, you know, that can give you saddle sores and, and that sort of thing. And um, that can affect your, your mileage. You know, you might only drop two or three miles a day, but that's your 20 minutes potentially, you know, mm. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot, a lot to it, but yeah, I, I don't have a, a, any sort of team, team behind me. And I always, I always feel too bad to ask. Like I always see these people. Like, so the guy who broke the, the record for cycling across Europe, broke it, f took it off me a couple of weeks after I finished, um, Lee Timmis, he, he did fully, fully supported, um, with a, you know, a camper van and a masseuse and a doctor and a chef and a million other people. And I'm like, how did you get these? How did you convince these people to take time out of their lives to come and follow a grumpy cyclist, you know, just sitting down with his headphones in the whole day. But uh, I definitely do not have friends who are that keen to help me. So uh, yeah, for now I'm stuck to self-supporting, I guess. If you, if you compare and contrast the, the Europe cycling trip with the world's longest triathlon, I mean, what, what, did, what did that triathlon uh, look like, first of all? Like, what, what were the, the, the parts of it? So the record before me was this woman um, in Mexico, I think. She had done a 3,500-mile triathlon. And basically what you do is you divide the total distance up into the same percentages as a normal triathlon. So short swim, you know, long cycle, medium run. So I landed up doing a 4,200 mile triathlon around the coast of Great Britain um, because I'd, you know, I'd swum it, cycled it, run it. Um, I'd, I still have the sailing record randomly. Um, <laughs> me and two of my mates, uh, 
did it in 2015, 84 hours, um, uh, which is, yeah, that was miserable because I get terribly seasick, honestly. And I lived on a boat for three years. I thought, I know boats, this will be easy. And I was just all, just not a happy bunny for, for the whole, <laughs> the whole sail. Um, but um, yeah, I wanted to the coast of Britain. So I landed up cycling from Dorset all the way around the West Coast, uh, past John O'Groats, back down to Scarborough. I then ran from Scarborough to Brighton. Um, which was, yeah, about eight. So the cycle was 3,200 miles, just over, I think. The run was 820-odd miles. Um, and then from Brighton, I swam back to Dorset, 120-mile swim. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that landed up being that. The, the difference with fast world's furthest and world's fastest is the time element and the time element really changes things um was it harder it's it's hard to tell because they're both difficult because the triathlon i was still i didn't want the perception of the triathlon to be a holiday and in order to do that in order to sort of install the public's confidence in your legitimacy you've really got to be going morning till night. So every day I was up at 6 a.m. and I would go all the way through to sort of 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night. And you've got to do that day after day. Otherwise, if you don't do that, people just kind of go, oh, well, of course it's easy to do because, look, you, you're going to spend three years doing it, you know. Mm. Um, so that, was, that took me 80, 85, 85 days, but pretty much the best part of three months, really. You know, that's a long time to do something yeah. morning till night, you know. Obviously, the swim is tidal, so I had big, long gaps in the day when the tide is against me. Um, but still, that's, it's a, that was a slog, you know. Whereas the Europe ride is longer because I'm getting up much earlier and cycling till later, um, and I'm against the clock. So there's no, there's no sort of, well, if I, you know, maybe I can just lie in for an hour. You know, there's none of that. So it's a different type of of difficulty so yeah so they're both they're both equally equally difficult really for different reasons but i get maybe the the triathlon sounds slightly more enjoyable so, yeah the good thing about the triathlon is you you're not limited to, you don't have that time sort of devil on your shoulder going you know if you get off the bike and pee you're going to lose a minute so you have to stay on the bike and pee you know so um that made it more enjoyable. And also doing stuff in Britain is amazing. You know, people understand your language when you go, oh, well, I've just cycled, you know, from Dorset to Land's End in one day. And people go, whoa, man, that's amazing. Whereas, you know, when you cycle across Europe and you go, well, I've just cycled, you know, from Madrid uh, to somewhere in France in one day, you know, the French people go, it's Madrid far from the border and the Spanish people go, Oh, well, I don't know how far that is in France. So kind of, they don't understand it. And no one, no one could be bothered, you know, trying to even attempt to speak English with you in Western Europe. Certainly Eastern Europe's a different ball game. People were super excited to try and actually practice their English with me um, and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, so it's a very different ball game, but, but yeah, doing stuff in Britain is amazing. You know, you, you, everyone speaks your language. You can get, you know fry ups everywhere and it's just mm. great so you've you've got you've got the um 
you said sorry you've got the was it the first the fir- the first the fastest and the and the further Fur- furthest yeah first furthest and fastest so they which are pretty cool aims and they obviously get they go together very well um what now now that you've achieved that and obviously conscious that we're in a strange time at the moment and i see yeah. you've done some smaller escapades recently with your family which look really cool um, yeah but what's what's on the what's on the agenda now what's what are you thinking is next well i still have more records you know this i've got my little black book of records that want to i want to keep doing um i'm also I, I i realized a few years ago that people would sort of look at the stuff i did and that they, they just they just it was too big it was too confusing it was too logistically difficult that it became so unattainable for them they just didn't really follow it you know um and and that happens a lot you know you know for example for me it's astronauts you know for me astronauts are kind of in the same thing because i look at an astronaut and i go wow that's cool but to be honest i don't really understand it i'm never going to be an astronaut so i'll just let them carry on doing their thing right yeah uh, and for a lot of people you know cycling around the world to you know in their eyes it's just this completely stupid ridiculous pointless thing that's too hard to do too expensive to try and raise the money for potentially uh, so i'm not even going to bother i mean I, i have to say they're wrong because it's very <laughs> it's very achievable it's not nearly as expensive as you think it is mm. alistair humphrey spent four and a half years cycling around the world on seven and a half grand um so you know it it really isn't as expensive as you think it is um but of course everything costs money and and you know you've, you you can't deny that fact um so lately and and especially since i've had a son you know i've been looking at answering some of the questions that people have so actually in the next probably in the next 6 weeks um when when it's kind of safe to do so i'm i because one of the questions i get is oh i'd love to do cycle touring but i don't have the time you know or oh, i'm not fit enough i'm too old you know that's quite a common one actually people sort of in their 60s going oh i wish i'd cycled lands end to john o'groats but i now you know my knees are knackered and and that sort of thing so i i'm going to cycle lands end to john o'groats in the next 6 weeks on an e-bike <laughs> <laughs> just to show that actually nowadays there is the technology there's stuff that will allow you know people who maybe don't have the time to do it maybe don't have the fitness or they've got an injury but they can actually still get out on a bike and you know i'm i don't get me wrong i mean you're not going to see me spending the rest of my life on an e-bike but i want to show people you know and i want to show people that you know yes i go off and do the bonkers stupid silly stuff but actually you can also there's other stuff you can do which is just as exciting that you know even if you've got slightly knackered knees get a knee bike and you can still get up the hills you know <laughs> yeah so um yeah so I, i'm going to be doing that hopefully in the next 6 weeks if if things will allow um and and a few other little projects here and there but uh yeah at the moment i'm mainly just enjoying being at home with a, with a youngster you know i'm not going to get this time again with our first born so it's it's quite nice to be honest yeah absolutely well that's a great um that's a great idea the e-bikes the, the e-bike trip is a, is a fantastic idea 
um, for people who, because I bet there's a lot of people in that camp who, who <sighs> harbour secret am, ambition and either for some reason there's kind of a, a self-limiting belief and that and, um, yeah. and people don't do it. And obviously life is life's difficult anyway, so things things will get in the way, no yeah. doubt. Um, no, that, totally, that, that's such a great idea. I mean, a lot of honestly, the, the three things that I get the most of is, is time, money, and ability, right? Those are the three hurdles that most people put in front of themselves thinking that that's the reason, right? And I get the money thing, you know, e-bikes cost money. You'd have to go and buy an e-bike and I, I appreciate that. Um, you can always sell it at the end and if you look after it, you probably won't lose that much money on it, especially if you buy a secondhand one to start off with. Um, so that takes the money side. Time, yeah, I agree. You know, we all live very busy lives and I appreciate that it's it's not easy. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you this now, I haven't run it past my wife yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's going to be a difficult conversation because I'm going to have to say to her, you know, she runs her own business. So, you know, if I'm away for a week, it's it's sort of, right, who, who's going to deal with childcare and, and getting our son to nursery and things like that. Um, so I appreciate, you know, that's a real thing, but you know, if I think most people, you can, you know, make a plan. If you plan far enough in advance, um, there's always help out there within hopefully, you know, with family members and things like that. Um, or if you save for it, just put it in the budget to try and maybe get, you know, a babysitter in for a few hours a day, which will, you know, hopefully allow my wife to work on, you know, her, her business. Um, and things like that. Uh, and ability, you know, abilities, a big one, you know, people are like, oh, I'd love to cycle around the world, but I, I couldn't, you know, I'm too old now, my knees are knackered and whatever, whatever. So, um, yeah, you know, there are ways of doing that. There are ways of, of, of sort of making things happen. And I think when you sit down with someone and actually pry a little bit into the reasons that they've given you, you can often find that in a way they're just sort of using those excuses as a reason not to go which is sad but i get it you know sometimes you go well if if that makes you sleep better because it scratches that itch by going oh well i can't do it because of this so i'm not going to get depressed by it that's fair enough i i completely understand that mm. you know so um but yeah there are there are ways of especially now with technology and, and you know doing doing you know leading a, an interesting and unusual life and doing the things you wish you had done maybe when you were a little bit younger, you know? Definitely. Well, Sean, I'm conscious of time. I've got one more question has come to mind, which um, yeah. in terms of, because the volume of, of the, of the, of what you're doing in terms of activity, I guess you're going to do a, quite a lot of build up training before these events, just in terms of time, time on your feet, time on the bike, time in the water. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you manage your body in terms of, because I would have, I would, the assumption would be that when you're doing something that, or, or these activities with this level of volume, that you'll develop some kind of chronic injuries, what, whatever that might be, whether that probably spine related, I guess, like lower back or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. How, how do you think you're lucky or do you, do you, do you do a lot of stretching? Like how do you manage your body? I have been quite lucky um, up until the last couple of years. I, I was really really flexible. I recovered very quickly from little, little tears and, and muscle injuries. I, I, I would build strength quite quickly as well. Like in a, it was amazing, you know, w within a week I was 
you know, I, I mean, I can't give you the figures, but, you know, if on day one I could only do 10 push-ups, by the end of the week I was probably doing 50 in a row type thing, you know. So, yeah. I just, you know, I would really repair quite quickly in the early days. Um, I also, I never overtrained, which, um, which is surprising. I, I thought I was the prime candidate for overtraining, um, but I've become quite aware of my body especially in the last couple of years. Um, I, I, but then saying that, I probably am always injured, but kind of push through it. <laughs> I guess, I guess, you know, at the moment I've got this dodgy foot thing, but actually, weirdly, it only hurts when I walk. It doesn't hurt when I run. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is great. Um, cycling, I've still got nerve issues from down my pinky. So I, I, both both my pinkies on my hands are kind of numb not all the time but they feel tingly because I've been ha- putting my hands on the handlebars for so long they've kind of crimped that nerve a bit you know um, my neck hurts a little bit when I got run over cycling across America during the round of the world that injury is the one that's kind of is still really with me because that was a proper I got run over and my back still hurts even sitting down now, it hurts talking to you here. Uh, when I did the cheese rolling in 2009 in Gloucestershire, uh, I dislocated my shoulder. That injury is kind of always there as well. Um, so I, you, you just manage the injury. And I've now learned the difference between an injury that's going to get worse versus the injury that's just a tightness and I can fix it with a tennis ball or Rupert the roller. I have a rolling pin called Rupert and you know, I use him to roll stuff out and that sort of thing. But certainly now stretching has become a, a, a bigger part of my sort of everyday. Um, and actually, I, I also now do lo- a lot more sort of daily short bits of exercise just for my mental well-being. Because I, I, normally I sort of, kind of Monday to Friday, I, I don't do anything. And then Saturday, I just go out all day. <laughs> um, but I'm finally that's harder and harder to do with a little toddler running around. So I'm doing little things um, every day lately, um, which I don't really feel like hit sessions and stuff. I don't feel benefit me massively physically. I do a little bit and it, you know, all the scientists here are going to shout and shout and go, of course they benefit you, you idiot. Um, and they, of course they do, but they don't for me for the super ultra distant stuff. Yeah. It, it doesn't really help, but like you just need to be, getting the miles in the legs, you know, I need to be going out and hammering, hammering the pavement, you know, you can be the, the best, you know, 5k, 10k runner in the world, but, you know, try and do a triple, a triple marathon, you're going to die, right? Um, so, you know, you've, there's no shortcuts for the super, super ultra distance stuff. You just got to get the miles in the legs and, and go there. And, you know, I, I, you know, touch wood, I've been pretty, pretty good. I've, I've had had my injuries, but I seem to bounce back from them quite well. I'm quite lucky there. And I think that's just, don't know what it is. My diet's pretty good, you know, mainly plant-based. We're plant-based here at home uh, four days a week. Um, and that seems to help my mood, if anything, that I feel just more alert um, mm. with a plant-based diet. Um, I'm not fully plant-based because of, if I go around to someone's house and they've made a real effort doing a nice Sunday roast roast dinner, I'm not going to be that guy. Right. Cause for me, 
if that's not what it's all about for me you know for me it's it's i feel better i genuinely just feel better uh, i don't have grain in my diet either so except corn i'll have corn but i don't have any other grains in my diet um and i, I the only dairy i have is cheese because what's the point of living without cheese <laughs> um, so yeah so my diet's pretty good and that sort of thing i sleep well um as well as you can sleep with a 15 month old um but uh but yeah i think that's that's kind of kept me being able to to sort of keep going um and i also know how important recovery is so i'm quite good at that as well yeah you can't you can't eradicate cheese when the whole thing started with <laughs> the cheese rolling exactly <laughs> cool well sean uh, real pleasure to talk to you and a fascinating journey not obviously the endurance stuff and the detail around it but also the the transition which I think even though people may not aspire to do these kind of trips the the nature of that kind of career transition I think a lot of people can can relate to and that's one of the reasons of um it's such an excellent story and so so great to talk to you so thanks a lot for taking the time I really appreciate it yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I always love sharing my story. And if one person decides tomorrow to get out on their bicycle, then uh, job done for me. So, yeah, get out there, everyone. So if people want to keep up with you uh, and your activities, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, gosh. Um, probably Instagram, I guess. Um, <laughs> I've done a massive digital detox lately, and I kind of not really on many of the other social media platforms as much as I should be apparently <laughs> uh, because that's what's important in life of course you know having more followers um, but Instagram I do enjoy because it, that for me is just a photo album of my my life so Sean Conway adventure on Instagram and um, yeah come and troll me about how dodgy my beard is looking <laughs> brilliant well that's that's great thanks thanks a lot sean and uh, yeah look forward to keeping up with your your adventures in the in the future brilliant yeah well thanks for having me and uh, yeah hopefully we'll catch up soon